Do you know what this is? It's a welcome card. And uh, I've counted up on our mailing list, and we have about 350 people now who say New Hope is their church. From where we started a year ago with about 30 to 50 people, I'd say God's doing something significant in our midst. But there's a lot of people who attend here that don't fill these out too. So if you're here for the first time, second time, third time, would you take a minute and fill out one of these welcome cards? I have a letter going out in the next couple weeks. I'd love for you to get that. As we're on vacations this summer and we travel, the best way to stay connected with each other is for me to be able to send a letter occasionally out to you. And we want to keep you updated on some of the things that you're going to see taking place here. Um, soon, we hope, within a number of weeks, we hope that the, the pews will be remodeled with new fabric and some of the carpet in here will be replaced and there'll be some modifications done to the stage, a little construction going on. We don't want to catch you by surprise, but we want to keep you upformed as you see things transpiring throughout the church. And also as the guys on the leadership team and myself continue to work on the Constitution that we want to share with you in October, um, approaching that point, we want to be able to keep you updated about that too. So if you would take the time to fill out one of these welcome cards if you haven't and give us your address, that would be very helpful. But be sure, if you are regular here at New Hope, and use the back of it for your prayer request. Let us know what your needs are so we can share it with our prayer team. So if you take the time to do that, that would be great. And one other item I want to um, ask you to remember is that it's not too late to uh, join the class that Ron started teaching this morning, Panorama of the Bible. Uh, Good turnout this morning, but there's still room for more people. And he wanted me to remind you that on the weekend of July 4th, there won't be a class that particular weekend. Okay? Well, if you've been in um, New Hope for the last few weeks, you know that we're working through a series called Foundations. And um, working our way through Genesis, we started all the way back in Genesis chapter 10, um, 10 weeks ago, because this is Foundations number 10. And we're working our way forward through the life of Abraham. And we hope to have foundations wrapped up by Labor Day weekend. But we're going to continue working through this through the summer, the story of the life of Abraham. And last week, we found that God revisited Abraham again, and at that point told him that he was going to have a child by his wife, Sarah, a year from that point in time. And then the story, if you remember, quickly shifted from Abraham talking with God to God telling Abraham what he was about to do to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. I find this text to be probably one of the most difficult passages I've ever taught on. And for sure, within the last year, one of the most difficult passages. There is so much going on here theologically that I actually have a small book of notes up here, so... um, Trying to keep my thoughts concise, I called Michael earlier this week and said, Michael, how about if we have shorter worship so I have a longer period of time to teach this week? So that's why you only had two worship songs this morning. Because there is so much going on in what God is doing. And we tend to think of just the destruction, the devastation that took place in that story. But there's much more. So I'm going to ask you to do this. As I teach through this passage... Would you be in prayer that God would have His way in the midst of this and that 
if his spirit has something to say to me in the midst of this, he would really impress it upon me because I don't want to miss what he's saying. I don't want you to miss what he's saying. So would you pray with me about that? Father, we take very seriously uh, what you recorded thousands and thousands of years ago. You wrote it as a record for those of us who live today and for generations who have passed on before us. We declared this morning, you are faithful. Great is your faithfulness. We don't even begin to comprehend how faithful you are. And yet, in the text that we look at this morning, we begin to understand more of your character and your nature. And that's what we really desire, Father, to get to know you better so that we can glorify you, so that we can live rightly before you. So, Father, I ask that you would guide us this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is, uh, for years at least, for sure, when I was in college and in the 70s and 60s, uh, a debate going on in society, what is truth? The question was asked all the time, what is truth? Hearkening back to Pilate, asking Jesus just before the crucifixion, what is truth? And Jesus declared, I am truth. No longer is there a debate in society about what is truth of, as far as absolute truth. But rather, the debate today in society, the world that you live in, is who gets to define truth? Who gets to define what absolute truth is? As an example of that, you could read in the headlines this last week of the marriages that took place in California with the law that changed in that same-sex individuals could marry each other legally in California Somebody, someplace in a court system said, I know truth. This is the new truth. This is the new definition of a family. Another example of that would be on major university campuses where students are allowed to live in aberrant lifestyle behavior, and yet, if they cross that line of political correctness, mm-mm-mm, you can be expelled. You can live deviantly. But if you say something politically incorrect, wow, you've really crossed the border. So there's a new definition of what is absolute truth. Most believe that truth is absolute. The debate is over who gets to define it, who gets to establish what that line is. Up through the 1940s and 1950s, For the years preceding that, especially in the United States, the church was the defining line of the influence in society. Slowly, in the 1950s, it began to take a shift. And the shift that took place was coupled with the rise of the entertainment industry. People who before had previously looked to the icons of our society, political leaders, titans of industry, military leaders, the ethos of a strong family unit began to fade away and rising to the forefront as the new standard of living became those who were in the field of entertainment. What we would call the era or the age of celebrity in which celebrities have a greater shift. Now, in concert with this shift that took place in the United States, 
was a change within the structure of the church, especially in mainline denominations, about what would be taught according to what is truth. Truth was no longer this, but socially feel-good messages. And churches began to decline in attendance. One particular denomination I could point you to has closed 27,000 churches since 1972. I can point to that exact same denomination and show you that back in the 1960s, they made a conscious decision to move away from teaching the Word of God, no longer declaring that what God said in here is truth. So with this shift in our society came a change in how the church did business. And the church has wondered today why only 9% of Americans would say that they believe this is absolutely infallible, the authoritative Word of God. Why do churches continue to decline? Why has our nation made this cultural shift? When a nation exchanges its moral compass, a compass that was built on the knowledge and the truth and the fear of God, and exchange it for a lie, and according to Paul in Romans chapter 1, begin to serve the created rather than the creator, they are in danger of destruction. And that is what you will begin to see fall in line today as we examine the story. I taught you a word, a Hebrew word, about six weeks ago if you were here. The word is yare. Say that with me. Yare. And it means awesome. It's the word awesome. Now, I think I clarified this for you before if you were here. It is not like when you're on your, on your rollerblades or on your skateboard, guys, and somebody really did a great job shooting the tube. That is not yare. Yare is a word that was reserved for things that were in comprehensible, whether scary or awesome to the point that it shocked you. Now, we use the word very loosely today, but the Hebrews used it when they were scared spitless. Okay? The fear of God had been impressed upon them. Now, last week we came across a verse in the midst of Genesis chapter 18 that said this, And the Lord said to Abram, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I want you to remember that word, Yahweh, as we work through this passage today, when we think in terms of the word outcry. I have really been stuck on this word this week, the cry of creation. You remember when Jesus was about to enter Jerusalem just before his crucifixion? And everybody was exalting him. It was on what we call Palm Sunday. And the Pharisees... And the Sadducees, they said to him, tell your people to be quiet. They're praising you like you're God. And he said, I tell you the truth, if these people were to close their mouths, the very rocks and the hills would cry out in praise. This cry of creation comes out through Scripture. There's a cry that came out from the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. A cry against all that was holy, And God heard it from heaven. Verse 23 from chapter 18, it'll appear up on the screen. This is from last week. I just want to remind you where we are at. Abram came near and said, 
Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? God himself had just said, anything is possible with Jehovah. When Sarah laughed because God said you're going to have a baby at 90 years of age, God said, is anything too difficult for God? And so Abram, with that fresh in his mind, comes back and says, God, you're not really going to do this. Nothing is impossible with God. Perhaps he'll spare the city for 50 righteous people. And so he makes his plea. Now, don't get the idea that Abram was coming and arguing with God. This is a Hebrew phrase here shall, uh, that Abram came near means that he came to present his case. As in someone showing up in a court of law, Abram came near to plead his case before God. Abram was sincerely burdened for his family. I found that mature Christians, those who have been in the faith a long time, have a really clear grasp of two great eternal truths. The first one is the greatness of God. Mature Christians have a really good understanding of the greatness of God. And the second one would be the righteousness of God. And Abram has walked with God a long time, and he understands the greatness of God and the righteousness of God. And so you see that coming out in these two verses. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? The greatness of God. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? The righteousness of God. Now, as you work through this passage this morning, I want you to notice the nature and the character of God that pops up out of this passage. I told you we started this foundation series 10 weeks ago that the characteristics of who God is are going to pop up off the page. I found six of them. You might find seven or eight today. I found the God who sees, the God who rescues, the God who is omniscient, the God who judges, and ultimately the God of wrath. So this is God's response to Abram when he says, what if you find 50? Verse 26, so the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. Now, Abram must have perceived that that was too easy, that God gave in. Uh Uh-oh, maybe there's not 50 in this place. So he starts working down the ladder, all the way down to verse 32 in chapter 18, and it says then, suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. If you're familiar with this story at all, have you ever asked yourself, why did he stop with ten? Well, if you add up Lot's family and his wife, his daughters, his daughters-in-law, his sons, guess what? They equal ten. So Lot probably figured, this is safe. we got a holy man in that city, a righteous man, the New Testament calls him. Certainly, Ten people can be found within this city. Supposedly, according to archaeologists today, they believe within the region of that valley there were a half million people 
living in that area. Ten righteous within a half million? Maybe. Abram returned to his home, went back, and began waiting. What a hard night of sleep that must have been. He's watching to see what would happen. I've showed you this photo before, the image of a lush valley, because of this reason. This is the way the area of that valley is described before God destroyed it. Genesis 13.10 says, It was well watered like the garden of the Lord. It was beautiful. The walk to the valley was beautiful visibly, but emotionally, it was full of sorrow. And when those angels showed up on the scene, they had to deal with what they were about to confront. How many years have gone by since God first declared how wicked that valley was? If you've been in here for the last six weeks, you know that way back in Genesis chapter 13, God said this about the city. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Genesis 13, 13. Our God is also long-suffering. 23 years. From the point when God declared how wicked they were to the point where He showed up with these two angels. 23 years. God is incredibly patient. We're living in a time of grace. God is withholding His judgment right now. Because this is the age of the dispensation of grace. It began with the arrival of Jesus. But that age will come to an end. There will be a judgment. Now, when we think of the word wrath as we enter into this text, as it's associated to God, you have to try and empty yourself of all the knowledge of wrath that you would think of associated to human behavior. Wrath associated with passion of revenge is not what God is talking about here. This is the wrath of God. This is the opposition of His divine nature. Now, let me illustrate it for you this way. When we think of a man with a home and his children who are well-behaved and he's got his household in order, his finances are in order, his job, he's well-respected, we look at an individual like that and we have great respect for them, saying, there's an individual who knows how to keep order. When we think of a politician, perhaps a mayor of a major city, who rules in such a way that criminals are dealt with, injustice is addressed. We say, that's a good leader. I'd like to keep him in power. Why do we not transfer that same value system over to God when God says, Here's the rules. I'm going to keep it in order. This is the way you will behave. And we learned last week that one of the reasons that God destroyed this city was because of the outcry of the poor. Look with me up on the screen at Ezekiel 16. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease. But she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I removed them when I saw it. Whenever sin is rampant, when it permeates society, it is a symptom of a deeper issue. 
for them involved in aberrant sexual behavior. God's saying, there's a bigger issue going on underneath here. They were haughty. They were full of pride. They were arrogant. They rejected the needs of the poor. And they had a lot of free time. And so they chased after the lust of the flesh. For all these reasons, when God became aware of it, he said he's to the point where he had to investigate it, to say, I know what's going on down there. And if it's as bad as it appears, they're going to be destroyed. Now, classic Jewish writers, ancient historians say that they not only oppressed the poor, they actually tortured people who took care of the poor. They burned them at the stake. Another practice that they had was the financial oppression of the poor. Here's what they would do. If you had a quarter in your pocket and you could pull it out and you thought, this is something I'll give to a person in need, what they would do first is they would pull out that little gold nugget and they would carve their initials into it. And then they would give it to the poor person. And then when that poor person took that gold nugget to the shop to trade it for food, if the keeper of the shop saw the gold nugget and that it had initials carved into it, they would refuse to sell to them. And then when the beggar died, the person who gave it to him could come back and claim their gold nugget back again. These are the cries of the poor that God is speaking of, which led to their behavior. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Do you know who said that? Jesus. Ten times Jesus referred to the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. That particular passage is from Luke. Jesus said, it's so aberrant in their behavior and what God did was so unbelievable that 2,000 years later, Jesus was still talking about it. And here we are today learning about it. Now we pick up in the very beginning of Genesis chapter 19. If you happen to have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. Genesis chapter 19, there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. And verse 1. These angels who are coming into the city, they look like men. Ordinary individuals. There's no halos. There's no wings on their back. They're not singing the hallelujah chorus. They just look like men walking into the city. And Lot, we find, is right at the gates of the city. Genesis 19, verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. This is a customary greeting, not because he knew that they were angels. This is the bow of salutation. He's just greeting them because they were men of stature. He recognized them. Now Lot is sitting at the gate. If you don't know anything about Bible history, you might want to remember this one. When you see this, someone sitting at the gate in a city, it means they're a ruler, a magistrate. They're responsible to make judgments on behalf of the people. But they're also there to give an official greeting because they're the magistrate. And Lot is a magistrate of the city, so he's sitting at the gate of the city. And when important visitors would come through, a magistrate's responsibility was to get up and greet them and say, come on in. Let us show you the hospitality of the city. Now verse 2, 
And he said, Now behold, my lords, small l, not Adonai, Adonai. Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. In ancient civilizations, especially in the Middle East, hospitality is at the highest level of regard. So much so that they valued hospitality to the degree that they would actually put their own family out if a stranger came and invited them in their house to take care of them. Not to the degree of about what you, you are about to see, but to the degree that they would care for them and protect them. But look what happens in verse 4. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men in as much as they have come under the shelter of my roof. Do you feel the extent of the wickedness of this city? It just makes you go, oh, I want to take a spiritual shower. It's dirty. Lot lost his moral values. Something shifted. And he was willing to turn over his own family because of his association with people of low morals, low values. He became thinking like them. He was, if you read through this, a person without any spiritual influence. His bank account was flourishing. He was very wealthy. God had blessed him greatly. His political influence, he ruled over the city. He was a magistrate. But his spiritual influence is non-existent. So much so that you watch the rejection come in just a few verses. Look at how Lot dealt with this issue in 2 Peter 2.8 as it appears on the screen. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, meaning Lot, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day, by their lawless deeds. But he didn't leave. He's got the discontent. He's got the ache. This description of filthy conversation, it means that they were saturated with it. They were deviant in their behavior. And Lot lived among them. And every form of godlessness was taking place there. Now look at verse 9. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien. They're speaking of Lot. And already he is acting like a judge. 
Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men, the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Some theologians believe that what happened here is they completely lost their eyesight. Others believe that the angels made it so dark, intentionally pitch black, that they couldn't find their way around, feeling for the door. It refers to uh, 2 Kings when Elisha had men who were trying to attack the children of Israel, and he prayed to God for blindness over his enemies, and they all became blind. It's an image of God having control over nature. Now look what happens in verse 12. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city. Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. There's no need for any further investigation. They know exactly what's going on here. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, and watch what happens, and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy it. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. What a statement that is. In his entire family, he had no spiritual influence. They took him as a joke. He had not done the things of God in such a way that they would take a warning like this seriously. And so he couldn't even reprimand his own family, much less the people of the city. This puts a man in a very desperate place. Lot, what about your family? What have you done? Your choice was great. You moved your crops into a lush valley. Your business is flourishing. But look what you sacrificed. You're going to give your daughters away? You can't even influence your family? We feel that pull every single day. The desire to succeed within the society that we live with, not to offend our co-workers too much, yet we don't want to compromise and not identify ourselves with the things of Christ. And you see Lot caught in this struggle, wanting his family to have the best, wanting them to succeed, and yet he finds himself in a situation that he has to compromise. Verse 15, When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated, so the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. In contrast to the men who are blindly groping for the door, trying to find a way into his house, God graciously grabs him and pulls him 
out of the city and guides him away. Because he calls him a righteous man? No, because God said, my compassion is upon him. He was counted later as a righteous man. When the New Testament writers looked back into the Old Testament, they called Lot a righteous man. But it was the Lord's compassion that guided him out of the city. God rescued Lot another time. Do you remember that? Way back in chapter 14, Abram showed up in the middle of the night. Lot had been captured by foreign enemies, dragged away as a prisoner of war. And God sent Abram out to rescue him, and he brought him back. And what did Lot do? He marched right back into the city again. Verse 18, But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I can do, cannot do anything until you arrive. Therefore the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And now suddenly the story goes from an individual and his family. And like a Hollywood picture, it widens in scope and we get to see what God does in righteousness. Verse 24, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But His wife from behind Him looked back and she became a pillar of salt, a statue frozen in place. I came across this particular painting by an 18th century artist I want you to see. Take that in for a minute. Flames wrapping all over the top of the city. Not a nuclear blast, not an explosion, but the fire from the pit of hell coming up and consuming a half million people, not just Sodom, not just Gomorrah, but the other four cities around it. The ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah have been discovered. I don't know if you knew that. Archaeologists have discovered them some time ago, actually back in the early 1900s, where they believe that they were located. What would cause every single structure in the midst of a city like this to implode and collapse in the way that archaeologists have found them. Well, there's three different theories that have come out in the last hundred years. First one is that area, that region, they know that there's subterranean deposits of oil and bitumous asphalt, kind of like tar. Matter of fact, you read about that in Genesis chapter 14 when some of them were trying to escape the city because they were under attack and some of the people ran and they fell into the tar pits. So one of the theories is that there was an earthquake. And as this bitumous asphalt erupted out, there were sparks. And the sparks caught 
the tar on fire, and all this asphalt fell down on the roofs. They know that all the fires that were started started on the rooftops of the houses. That's theory number one. Theory number two that's become real popular recently. Sorry. Told you I had a lot of notes up here. Theory number two that's become real popular recently is a strike of lightning. They believe that lightning hit the place and ignited it on fire. Because it was such a lush valley, they think, maybe there was a drought and perhaps lightning took it on. Now, I'm talking about secular archaeologists, people who are not followers of God. They're trying to come up with theories about how this might have happened. Now, this third one is the richest one I've heard because it was just discovered within the last 14 years. I find it very fascinating. They found a little tablet. And on this particular tablet are etchings of the fall of an asteroid. An asteroid that hit this area of the Mediterranean about 3,500 B.C. Now, never mind the fact that that's 1,500 years before Sodom and Gomorrah. But here's what geologists and archaeologists are theorizing, that the asteroid, when it came and crashed into the earth somewhere around the Swiss Alps, dropped all kinds of debris, and all that debris fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's what ignited it. Each of the cities of the plain contain evidence of brimstone all around it. As a matter of fact, there's so much of it that there's millions of deposits of little balls of brimstone embedded in the mountains. Take a look at what this looks like. I know it's a very grainy picture. Do you see that white center? And there's a brown crust around it. You're looking at an actual piece of brimstone that was dug up out of the mountains in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now here's what's unique about it. It's 96% pure sulfur with traces of magnesium in it. Nowhere else on planet Earth is there any type of sulfur laced with magnesium in the form of a ball any place on Earth, except in this particular region. Look at this quote from a geologist who was searching this area back in 1920. His name is Dr. Melvin Kyle. A region on which brimstone was rained will show brimstone. Well, it does. We picked up pure sulfur in pieces as big as the end of my thumb. It is mixed with the marl of the mountains on the west side of the sea and now is to be found scattered along the shore of the sea, even on the east side, some four or five miles distance from the ledge that contains the stratum. It has somehow scattered far and wide over this plain. Now I ask you again, what would cause every single structure in the region where a half million people lived to burn from the rooftop down in a cataclysmic event? As a matter of fact, archaeologists have found that everyone who lived in this region, for some reason at the end of the Bronze Age, Stopped. It just stopped. There was no migration of people out. It just ceased to exist. So here is my fourth reason for why 
Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And it's found in Deuteronomy 29. All its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown, unproductive, and no grass grows in it. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zaboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Deuteronomy 29:23. I showed you the lush valley. Look at what this region looks like today. Do you want to live there? I think they'd have a hard time selling seashore property there. Yet, God's Word promises that there is a day coming in the Messianic age when that will flourish again. When that will be restored through God's work. Here's what historian Josephus wrote about this region after it was destroyed. Josephus is an ancient historian that lived about 2,000 years ago. Listen to his account. Now this country is then so sadly burnt up that nobody cares to come to it. It was of old a most happy land, both for fruits it bore and the riches of its city. Although it be now all burnt up, it is related for the impiety of its inhabitants. It was burned up by lightning, in consequence of which there are still the remainders of the divine fire, and the shadows of the five cities are still to be seen there. That there were several cities located in this area, it's no longer in question. That they were cataclysmically destroyed, no longer in question. Where they were located has been identified. What perplexes geologists and archaeologists today is how it happened. Here's the mistake in that. No one's asking why it happened. Because that takes you to a whole new realm of what does God do when people act unrighteously, when they are in danger of his judgment. Look on the screen at 2 Peter 2.6. He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Now, way back in the beginning of this chapter, when we first started looking at it, I told you just two angels came into the city. But we know that there were three men talking to Abraham. Last week we discovered that that third was the Son of God. And there's no reappearance of the Son of God in this story until verse 24. He makes a reappearance. Look at verse 24 again on the screen. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and the Lord rained fire from out of heaven. Do you know that Jewish scholars who do not believe in Jesus Christ really, really struggle with that verse right there? Because they deny Jesus existing as the Son of God, one of the three members of the, tri of the Trinity. Except in this passage right here, Jehovah on earth and Jehovah in heaven. And that's against their Jewish way of writing. And they can't rectify this in their mind. That the Son of God, according to what we understand of Scripture, 
was present and caused the fire of hell to fall on the city. And God, the Father in heaven, caused the fire of hell to collapse on this city. We get the imagery of fire and brimstone. You think of the phrase you've heard over the years, fire and brimstone preachers, or fire and brimstone messages. It all roots back to this in link with Revelation chapter 14. In Revelation 14, it talks about brimstone that makes up the lake of fire. And the destiny of all those who do not confess Jesus Christ as their Savior to end up in the lake of fire, salted with brimstone. What was the greatest ache, I think, in the heart of Lot the next morning when he woke up after everything that he knew had been destroyed? Do you think he's looking for his wallet? Oh, man, I only got to pay for gas today. Do you think it was his political career? Do you think maybe his greatest ache was the loss of his family? Because of the lack of spiritual influence that he had on his old family to the point where his wife longingly looked back for it. When it says that she turned and looked, it wasn't just to get a glimpse of this destruction. The word is nabat. Look on the screen. To look intently at, by implication, to regard with pleasure. She lusted after that city. Just because something is pleasing to your eyes does not mean that it's good for your life. The angels warned her. Did you ever notice that Abram looked at the city too, and yet he wasn't turned into a pillar of salt? He didn't have any lusting. He looked with sorrow. We're not told what Abram might have been thinking, but you can imagine. That verse, that question in which he said to God, should not the judge of all the earth deal rightly with man? And the next morning he gets up and he looks down in the valley and he sees smoke. Verse 27 as we wrap this up. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace meaning it was extremely dense. Thus it came about, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. So I have a question for you. Two questions. How wicked does a nation have to be for God to render judgment on it? How wicked does one individual have to be for God to render judgment on them? Look on the screen at what Jesus said. Matthew 10, 15. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Well, what's he talking about there? 
he was living among the people of a city called Capernaum. They watched his miracles every day. They listened to the truth, declarative truth. I am the truth. He heard them respond this way. What you say is too hard. No way. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to cross that line. And Jesus, in response to them, said, As bad as it was for Sodom and Gomorrah, you're going to be in a much worse place. There is so much theologically in that statement right there that I can't even begin to go there because it would take hours. The fact that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed in one day, but yet God says there's another judgment coming for them again, and the judgment that people who reject me will endure because they rejected me, Jesus, the Son of God, is more severe than the destruction of a city of a half a million people. We don't begin to comprehend the wrath of God. When people live unjustly, unrighteously before Him and reject Him, not just as a nation, but as individuals, and we willingly go about our business and walk along as though it's never going to end. I doubt that a week and a half ago, when the NBC News broadcaster Tim Russert woke up in the morning on Friday, that he thought, this is going to be my last day on earth. I doubt when the people of Sodom and Gomorrah woke up that morning and saw the storm clouds gathering that they had any idea that it was their last day on earth. As amazing and as egregious as this event is, Jesus died to save every single sinner, just like the sinners you read about in here. Just like you and I. You may have never committed a sin like these individuals in here. But nonetheless, you committed sins Jesus said, I died for every one of those individuals. He said in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for the sins, the just Jesus for the unjust, that he might, what? Bring us to God. His whole purpose. When you hear a message like this, when you hear historical facts, when you hear analogies of things that have been written 4,000 years ago and know that they're still applicable to your life, what do you do with it? What are you going to do tomorrow that's going to make your day any different than what it was yesterday before you heard this information? Because this is what Jesus is saying to the people of Capernaum. Yesterday you heard this. Tomorrow, are you going to hear it again and reject it? Are you just going to keep on going? Because there is a day of judgment. You will have to deal with it. That's what he's calling you to. Face the reality of the issue. If you're not walking with me, you're walking against me. And you don't have as much time as you think. Shall not the judge of all the earth do rightly? I've got to believe in a room with this many people in here, that the Holy Spirit's at work prompting the hearts of someone. Someone who might be very distant from God. 
And this is a time when you can respond to that call. Don't turn away from what God has called you to do. If His Spirit is prompting you, respond. Say, God, I've got to turn in this direction. I do not want to face this ultimate punishment. That's hellfire and brimstone. Michael's going to lead us in worship in just a minute. I encourage you so much. When this service ends, if you want somebody to talk to, come on up here. I'll be right here. I'm not going anyplace. You may just have questions about the church. But if you have questions about the things of God, come on up and talk with me. Don't put it off. Would you pray with me? I mean, really, will you pray with me? Really pray with me. Father, we don't want to lose this moment. Your Spirit presses in ways that make us so uncomfortable because it means walking away from things that are familiar to us and safe and comfortable and, man, I don't want to give up on the things that are familiar to me. But You call us to a higher standard. Father, we recognize and we declare this morning that the higher standard only begins with Jesus Christ. Short of that, nothing else matters. Father, for my brothers and sisters in this room who are already walking with You, I ask that You make them more bold about their faith so that they can warn a world that's lost and quickly running away from You. And for men and women or boys and girls in this room who are not there yet, Father, God, I ask that Your peace would rest heavy upon them, but more than that, Your grace, so they understand that You are a God of grace and You forgive a world of sins. But it's not until we walk alongside You and claim You Before you give them that peace, though, Father, before you give them that grace, make them really uncomfortable. God, I don't want anyone to face hell, but rather to face eternity in heaven with you. You've given us a way. God, we declare it again you are faithful, you are great in your faithfulness. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we declare all these things. Amen.